the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. This is the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. On this Friday, February 16th, 2024, good to be with you. Uh, we got two Dr. Larrys back-to-back. In about an hour, Dr. Larry Martinez joins us. Let's talk about high-speed rail in California and also the consequences of Russians developing a nuclear-powered device in outer space. What's up with that? Uh, this hour, we're about to be joined by our good friend and regular contributor, Larry number two, Dr. Larry Lockman, author and psychologist, who sent me a fascinating but also disturbing article out of the Atlantic, Why Americans Suddenly Stopped Hanging Out. Something's changed in the past few decades. After the 1970s, Americans moved less from place to place. They stopped showing up at their churches and temples. And now it seems to be, in the words of the immortal Greta Garbo, we want to be alone. So what is going on with all this? Why am I talking when we have Dr. Larry Lockman joining us? Larry, good afternoon. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for making time for us, sir. We always appreciate the conversation. And I start off by reminding folks that we talked last August about the Surgeon General's report about loneliness. And this Atlantic article seems to be the companion piece. That's true. And last August and May... The U.S. Surgeon General put out a health advisory entitled The Healing Effects of Social Connection to Community because that was in reaction to an epidemic of loneliness and isolation with about 50% of adults reporting experiencing loneliness. And we know that loneliness is uh, 29% of the time associated uh, with heart disease, uh, 50% of the time with dementia, 32 time, 32% of the time with strokes, uh, one study made the equivalent of the uh, emotional and behavioral and physical effects of chronic loneliness uh, affecting your lifespan as if you were smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So, yes, uh, significant loneliness. Uh, referring to the Atlantic article, from 2003 to 2022, American men reduced their average hours of face-to-face socializing by about 30%. For unmarried Americans, the decline was even bigger, more than 35%. For teenagers, it was more than 45%. Boys and girls ages 15 to 19 reduced their weekly social hangouts by more than three hours. In short, there is no statistical record of any other period in U.S. history when people have spent more time on their own. React to that, please, Larry. Yeah, we talked about that single... Uh, occupant households have uh, skyrocketed, skyrocketed since the 1960s. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, if we look at the number of U.S. adults who receive mental health treatment, when you look from 2002 to 2021, so like 19 years, uh, 2002 is about 27 million people. Now it's uh, 42 million people. And last I looked, we have 330 million people in our country, so that's about 12% of Americans getting mental health treatment. Uh, And the percentage of mental health treatment by age group 
the largest group, 87, 88%, are young adults, 18 to 25. And according to what we're taught as psychologists, uh, young adulthood, the prime focus is to develop intimate relationships and social support. Uh, in the article, Americans in the 2020s, this decade, solitude, anxiety, and dissatisfaction seem to be rising in lockstep. Surveys show that Americans, especially young Americans, had never been more anxious about their own lives or more depressed about the future of the country. You teach at a few colleges, and I'm wondering if you see this in your students, Larry. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I may or may not have mentioned it last time I was on with you. Uh, two semesters ago, I did an empirical survey of about 200 undergrad college students at two colleges among six courses or six classes. And I just asked them, how are you guys the same or different uh, before compared to after COVID, uh, the coronavirus? Um, 80% said that they prefer to be at home, prefer to be alone, uh, not as comfortable going out and don't interact as much as they used to before COVID, and that leaves 20%. So among the 20% remaining, 10% said they were so frustrated they couldn't get together with their peers and social contacts that they made up for lost time and they're more outgoing and social and less time at home, and 10% said there was no change. Teenage depression and hopelessness are setting new annual records every year. This part is particularly sad for me. The share of young people who say they have a close friend, who say they have a close friend, has plummeted. Americans have been so depressed about the state of the nation for so many consecutive years that by 2023, pollsters said, we have never before seen this level of sustained pessimism in the 30-year history of the poll. Which means that predates COVID, right? Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah. and so what's missing is the I word, and the I word is intimacy. And, you know, we define intimacy as sharing that which is most innermost with others. Um, and that, you know requires self-disclosure, face-to-face contact, not face-to-screen contact. And part of the issue, I know the article that you're citing at Atlantic, he tried to summarize it in three areas, but I was getting more that there was like a confluence of factors that he was alluding to. What caught my eye, um, he said that 12th graders... In the 1970s, over half of seniors or 12th graders in high school saw or interacted or got together and did things with their buddies every day. Now, uh, seven years ago in 2017, it was down to 28%. Uh, another, Another article he cites in the Atlantic article that both uh, male and female 12th grade students, um, they... The rate of them seeing their friends twice a week between 1976 and 2012 uh, fell, you know, 20 to 30%. And I remember that kind of threw me back because that's about the time I was graduating high school as well. Uh, Yeah, after school, even though you're sitting and interacting somewhat in classes and in gym class, after school we'd all get together, you know, and walk downtown, ride our bikes, um, you know, play, 
uh, football, you know, our own version of tackle football. In my case, we did, you know, our imitation of Bruce Lee martial art films, and we're outside until, you know, nighttime fell, and our parents were like, where are you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now that's that's not happening. Yeah. Well, as the Atlantic article points out, Larry, the um, the decline was taking place, but it accelerated after 2015. That seems to be the turning point. And I think I have three suspicions with that. One is about telephone culture. The other one is about technology, smartphones, and the Internet. And I know it sounds like it's all from left field, but how major companies that we need to contact, like our banks or companies that make our drills or lawnmowers, started offshoring their call centers. So we couldn't get anybody live. They closed the places, like Comcast last year closed the walk-in place up in the Monterey area. And now you can't get anybody on the phone. Yeah. Um, so and, me... and you're bounced around, and they were, were disconnected. And yes, therapists are overwhelmed, and most of them are feeling burnt out. Most of them don't have any openings, and it takes three to six months to get in to see a psychiatrist or a therapist. And yes, telehealth, you can cram more people in, but sometimes you lose your... That's also kind of, how should we put it, indirectly and unintentionally feeding our disconnection with each other well let's do this let's take a quick break we'll come back we'll dive into those three areas in more detail with author and psychologist dr dr larry lockman explaining the old gretel garbo adage about wanting to be alone we're taking that seriously now and there are certainly consequences to that i invite you to stick around we're live we're local this is hometown radio Our guest for the hour is Dr. Larry Lockman, author and psychologist, uh, sharing with us a relatively new article in The Atlantic magazine about our desire to be alone, our desire to disconnect young people, old people, all across the board. What the heck is uh, going on? Larry, before the break, there were three topics that you wanted to cover. Let's dive in one by one. Start with the first one, please. I think the change of telephone culture, there was an uh, article by... Alexis Madrigal in uh, 2020 in the Archives Daily News. And it's interesting, she mentioned that when the telephone first was developed in the early 20th century, (laughs) Alexander Graham Bell wanted people to start out their phone calls with, Ahoy! Ahoy! (laughs) And then AT&T told people not to say hello because they said it was rude. And then etiquette magazines in the 40s and 50s told women not to invite people over for dinner parties over the phone. It's rude. you got to send it. But then, you know, your doctor got a phone, and your pharmacist got a phone, and, like, the colored TVs, the neighbor got a phone. And then we had, you know, this phone culture that, you know, bef- you know before caller ID or star 69, you know, not picking up the phone would be like someone knocking at your door, right, and you're standing behind it and not answering it. It was at least rude and yeah. possibly creepy and it became a cultural common uh trait of uh, when you called somebody if the person was there they would pick up if someone called you uh you would pick up when the phone rang we we knew what to say well now 
because of less and less um, interpersonal direct communication, because uh, people are texting or on the Internet or sending emails, uh, we're a little bit lost of how to communicate and how to communicate in full sentences. You know, when I teach, I'll ask my students, all right, you know, what was the definition of um, schizophrenia and which neurotransmitter was elevated? And they'll raise their hand and they'll say, like, one word. I go, so it's like a fragment. <laughs> so then I pretend I'm their little brother and I'll start asking about 10 different whys. Well, why? And then we'll come up with another fragment, why? And about the fifth why, they put a sentence together. And so oh, one of the articles that came out in Greater Good Magazine was how smartphones are killing conversation. And they uh, interviewed a sociologist at MIT, Sherry Turkle, and that we've become too dependent on our mobile phones. We lose our ability to have more deeper, spontaneous conversations with people. And being in person and seeing someone and talking, that's where we develop empathy. That's where intimacy comes from. Uh, we have eye contact. We can hear their tone of voice. We can see their body in three dimensions, their movements, you know, even body odor. I mean, we, give, we get all those sensory feedback. Sure. But 89% of Americans say that during their last social interaction in person, they took out a phone. And 82% said when they did that, it deteriorated the phone conversation. And when we ask people how they feel when they're talking to someone in person and they take out the cell phone and get distracted, in an article in 2021 by Louisa, Louisa Wright in Psychology Today, uh, they talk about people tend to feel excluded and their mood suffers because they believe they're being ignored because a person is focusing on the phone. And they have a word. Instead of being snubbed, we put phone instead of snubbed. It's called fubbed. fubbed. So frequently being fubbed <laughs> by a romantic partner creates conflicts, lowers the relationship satisfaction, and they feel that their interaction was negative, and they end up in my office on the verge of divorce. Wow. All right. That's one. What's two? So two that the article was talking about besides the technology and cell phones, is a combination of environmental and infrastructure. Uh, because of cost of living and housing prices, people have to go further and further out in the boonies, and they end up having a longer commute, being isolated, and people are spread out, and they're not as they were in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, more closely compacted together for interaction. And so the long commutes and the isolation in the car, you just take a picture of the 101 freeway and the 134 freeway in L.A., the busiest, one of the busiest freeways in America, you'll see everybody stuck in the car, gridlock, bumper to bumper, with one to three hour commutes because where they could afford to live and where their business was, obviously this was predominantly before COVID, but it's still similar, uh, is isolating. And the other thing is, um, besides infrastructure, environmental factors, uh, consistently for the last, oh, 15 to 25 years, depending on which survey you read, less and less people are going to church. Less and less people are going, as you said, to temple. Um, less and, there's less and less community centers open for after-school programs for people to get together. Yep. Less and less people are joining bowling leagues. That's that hanging out depression. So the question is, well, where do we connect? So lack of physical and environmental affordability or opportunity 
to connect. Uh, a third, you know, a third factor with that is in addition to the technology is, I don't know if you remember back in the 60s or 70s, and I can't remember if it was um, Ivan, um, see, uh, Isaac Asimov or um, Ray Bradbury, but some of the science fiction writers were like futurists. And they said, when we have technology and computers and gadgets, we'll have more leisure time and more time to relax and more time to connect. Well, the opposite has happened. Because we can crunch data so much, uh, employers and businesses are squeezing in a vice, in in an employment vice, more and more out of their employees. So one of the third factors he mentions the article is that people, especially in their 30s and 40s, young adulthood and middle adulthood, are busier and busier with less time to interact. Hmm. Well, on the you talked about um, shipping jobs and replacing people with automation. Last week, I had to um, go get blood work done, and I went to the place that I've always gone to, but they have a new location now. I went online, made an appointment, and that was fine. I walked into the office, a long, narrow, empty building. There was nobody there. And, Larry, I go up, and there's no receptionist. It's all online. So I had to type in my uh, uh, my name and do all the medical history. And then I sat down. I waited for about five minutes. The nurse herself came out and got me, took me back to the office, did the work, and let me go. And that was the only human contact I had the whole 20 minutes I was there. It was really weird. Wow. That is weird, especially if you're like give blood or do a medical procedure. It usually gets us anxious anyway, and interacting helps us relax, and we have nobody yeah. there but four walls to look at. That's not fun. Yeah. But I'm seeing more and more of that where I, you go to a, a grocery store or Target or something. Instead of a cashier, you just go self-checkout, and I do that sometimes if I'm in a hurry, but you're missing that human connection. I got 40 seconds for you to comment. Yeah, um, and you know, when we come back from uh, the 40 seconds, we can talk about more and more Americans are going to therapy because of the loneliness and the disconnection, and some of them are compensating with getting pets and spending more time with pets than uh, than uh, humans, people, yeah. friend, friends, or family. Uh, So that's another aspect of this. And then, of course, 24-hour cable news with horrific uh, stories makes all of us want to hide. We don't want anybody to hide because we're only halfway through our conversation with Dr. Larry Lockman, author and psychologist. Off we go. California Headline News, ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with Time Saver Traffic and Weather Together. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Larry and welcome your phone calls. Let's all stick together on this one. You're listening to KVEC.
This is the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. Author and psychologist Dr. Larry Lockman continues with us discussing this recent article in the Atlantic magazine. We're just kind of disconnecting from each other. We're disconnecting from organizations. We're preferring to be alone, particularly among young people. They're young people who don't have a best friend. Very disturbing on so many levels. And uh, Larry, as we come back to you, I want to hear more about what you were saying before the break in terms of corporations taking their business offshore and the social consequences of that move. Sure. So there's an article on the uh, Communication Workers of America website called A Sampling of U.S. Companies That Send Call Center Work Offshore. And at the beginning, if you remember the financial crisis of 2008, uh, the company Capital One received $3.56 billion in bailout. And despite the bailout that helped them return to profitability, they closed U.S. call centers and sent jobs overseas, mainly to the Philippines or India. They would lay off more than 300 employees in Tilgard, Oregon. And in 2012, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau levied the first ever fine against Capital One for $210 million. They were found guilty of scamming nearly 2 million customers with unrequested or misrepresentative services, and that came from their offshore call center in another country. Same thing with Bank of America. Bank of America received $45 billion in bailout funds, and despite returning the profitability, they close U.S. call centers as well. They offshored 450 consumer service jobs from Concord, California, in May of 2012, moved them to Costa Rica, Mex- Mexico, and the Philippines. They closed their Wichita, Kansas call center in July 2011, laying all 310 workers. So one point is to be made. Not only did that help disconnect and cut us off, and when we did get, if we eventually do get someone on the phone, there's a lack of communication. I think one of the, 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 the single thing I most hate about being a therapist is when I have to call insurance companies and verify the coverage of a patient and see if they have any copay. Um, so there's some exceptions, and you know, Cigna seems to be a little bit better than Blue Cross and Blue Shield and United Healthcare. But variably, I have to go through a, um, a hopscotch of prompts. And then get somebody on the phone, and I can't understand a word they're saying. It's almost like that movie from the Transformers when the Special Forces guy is trying to use his cell phone to get a word to Washington, and he's put on hold, and they talk about their uh, specials of the day. And so one point is made that, you know, a U.S.-based call center, and in the insurance company they call it an internal unit, domestic-based versus external unit, A U.S.-based call center provides access to people who have better understanding of English, slang terms, and U.S. culture compared to overseas firms. This advantage can lead to higher satisfaction with customers, which in turn can generate repeat business, word of mouth, social media referrals, positive reviews on Yelp, and so on, which could then contribute to higher sales and more profitability when people come back where it's not competitive or profitable if we do it in this country. So that kind of validates your experience when you went to your medical appointment. Yep. The other point is, you know, the demand for mental health treatment uh, is increasing, and it definitely got WD-40 accelerated after the pandemic. More than 8 out of 10 psychologists, 84%, 
who treat anxiety disorders said they have seen an increase in demand of anxiety treatment since after the pandemic. An article in uh, The Hill uh, by Alejandro uh, Alejandra Connell in 2023 says the number of Americans seeking mental health treatment is almost twice as high as it was two decades ago. In, 20, in 2004, 13% of adults said they visited a therapist. Two years ago, 23%. And yes, the shift got accelerated with, um, with COVID, but the indicators are suggesting that psychologists and therapists are working at or beyond capacity. More than 4 in 10, 41%, reported being unable to meet the demand. 46% uh, say they feel burned out. And the CEO of the American Psychological Association, Dr. Evans, says we are facing a mental health tsunami because of the disconnection. All right, let's take a call. We've got Jack in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Jack. Hi, good afternoon, Dave. Hi, Jack. Hi. Yeah, I think a lot of people, too, nowadays, uh, I, call them, I call the general public, a lot of them, the secretly unfortunate people of the world uh, that have misfortunes that nobody knows about, but they are suffering. And they're not only suffering one particular type of suffering mentally, they're suffering maybe a compound suffering. Like, I met a lady today. She was trying to get a ride from one place to the next. I was... I was a pedestrian myself, so I couldn't really give her a ride, you know. But she had broken her, her leg, and she had broken her elbow just recently, and she's been in constant pain. She's about 80 years old. Uh, you have people like that. They have two things, old age, combination with suffering physical pain. But even young people, different things happening, maybe uh, a drug problem, maybe fear, loneliness, compound suffering yeah. and there is no from what my experience uh is that especially for young kids uh, there is the mental health care is unavailable all right um, let me hang on jack you've got a lot putting out there uh doctor is is jack right about there being compound issues sometimes oh sure there's like a catch-22. People who have mental health issues tend to isolate, and people who are isolated have more mental health issues. So it becomes a tiger chasing its tail and kind of feeds on itself like a little uh, snowball going down the mountain becoming a big boulder. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, and, you know, Americans, you know, remember World War II, the World War II generation, um, the, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Just because we have compound problems doesn't mean we get overwhelmed. What we do with compound problems, like I help with my patients, is you break down these compound problems into uh, digestible amounts, and you do one thing at a time. And sometimes there's a core component uh, that is feeding these other issues. And so if depression is feeding alcohol abuse and, uh, and migraine headaches, and uh, harassment at work, and not taking care of your kids. Well, if you deal with that core issue of depression, these other things that compound it can also be relieved as well. Hmm. Jack, you want to talk about young people. What about it? Well, uh, about the only resource, let's say, if you have somebody that's suicidal, is at 5150, and, which is a poor excuse for nothing and, and, and torture for young kids. Uh, but uh, the other thing is, is that, 
as far as I think people in general throughout society need to take a little bit easier on each other as far as think in your mind, say, your first reaction might say, I'm going to get back to this person. You might draw back a little bit and say, okay, I'm going to take it easy. Even as far as news items and things like this, instead of taking a reaction of, I'm going to, they should do this, they should bomb this place, they should do that, draw back a little bit and say, what do I really know about this? I don't really know too much about this. All right, let's talk about that. Jack, thanks very much for the call. Is he right, Larry? So, yeah, as I listen to him, what comes to mind is um, John Holt, the educational reformer of the late 60s and 70s, who was one of the pioneers of the homeschool movement. And he knew back then, and the homeschool advocates knew back then, that because the kids were still at home with parents, they could face an isolation disconnection that could make them socially awkward or emotionally retarded, and they wouldn't be able to get along with their peers when they go to college or uh, get married or date or get a job. And so you would have to purposely, intentionally, the parents create play dates with a variety of people in a variety of settings. And then he also talked about small S schools. And this is kind of dovetailing to what are some of the solutions. They, some people call it third places. Some people call it sacred spaces. In Italy, they have town squares where everybody meets you know, during dinner time and interacts in person. Uh, sometimes there's an exchange of goods, like a farmer's market or flea market. But, you know, small S schools. Uh, some of my longtime buddies I met at martial arts training. And you are in person, and you're not on a cell phone, and you got to pay attention so you don't lose your teeth on the mat. Uh, same thing with yoga class. Same thing with uh, Sarah Club for singles, hiking on the weekend. Same thing with a bicycle club. Get out and do things. You know, men are known to have side-by-side relationships, physical activity with other men. Women tend to have more face-to-face relationships with other women coming from that anchored gaze and raising infants. So we need to have that interaction in three-dimensional, live, in-person scenario to develop empathy. And by increasingly uh, disclosing more private and personal information, we deepen the relationships. Right, and unfortunately, even though people may spend a lot of time on the phone and on the Internet, it's superficial. Let's take some calls. We've got Rick in Templeton on KVEC. Hi, Rick. Hi there. Hi. Uh, hi. I-, I wanted to tell you, I was riding the RTA bus one day, okay. and s- sitting a few seats ahead of me was a young mother with a, it looked to be a young girl, about between one and two maybe. But anyway, there, she, the mother had a smartphone, and, she, and I looked real hard to see what was on what they were showing she was showing the little girl on the smartphone but while they were driving down the road she had the smartphone and it was kind of like a cartoon show right you know but anyway the the little girl was just she had the smartphone like about a foot from the little girl's face while we were going down the road and the little girl was just staring just looking at that and just nothing else around her or anything and oh it was so sad kind of like she didn't have any friends because she a couple times i noticed her kiss the screen of the cell phone like she was kissing the cartoon character and and i thought wow let's get some thoughts let's get some thoughts from larry larry how do you respond to that story yeah, I mean, it is um, many times a quick way to occupy kids. And if you know, you're overwhelmed working two jobs, it's not us to judge. On the other hand, 
what makes healthy personalities and less mental health issues is secure attachment. And that attachment has to happen postnatal, once the child's born, and especially through the first five to 12 years of life. That means in person, getting their emotional and physical needs met consistently. The other problem with the cell phones and the screens and the computers and the tablets, it releases dopamine, and it's a stimulation fix. And they're jumping from one thing to another thing without resting your brain, because boredom allows the brain to reboot. And we know that if people use an iPad or a screen within two to three hours before going to sleep at night, uh, the sleep chemical melatonin is delayed in its release by two to three hours, and it's only 50% as strong as it would have been, then people are tired the next day. So uh, we have to have that balance, and on, once they get off the bus, let's go to a playground with some other kids and actually interact. Yeah, right. Rick, what else you want to say? Well, it just, it, it just, it just seemed like, uh, you know, it's just hard. I, I mean, I just watched from a distance, but it just it just seems like, you know, the, the the child should have been, you know, occupied looking at people, other people on the bus, and the, listening to other people, and looking outside at the, you know, the scenery, uh, uh, but it's it it just focused on that screen. Right. The child should have been a child. All right, Rick, thanks for that perspective. Here's Dirk. Hey, Dirk. Yeah, uh, I'm pushing 70 years old. I tend to be solitary. I'm not popular. It is what it is. Uh, I'm a learner. But uh, the doctor mentioned churches. I've been a long-time student of religion going on for decades, and I'm not too sure just because you go to church and associate with all that, uh, you're necessarily too healthy when we know a lot of that's just all made up, fabricated propaganda and whatnot, and people are standing there in their suits and they're painting on faces and the poker face, and it's all baloney. The cognitive dissonance of standing there in the church when we know it's all a put on. Uh, I, I personally would not step foot in a church period. I don't care if I die 10 yeah. years younger or develop all kinds of health issues. Uh, church does not, church attendance does not make you necessarily a healthy person. That's all I got to say. Thank all right, Dirk. Thank you for the call. Somewhat off topic, Larry, but any part of that you want to respond to? Oh, yeah, he makes a point. So spirituality or denominational religion is only helpful if uh, there's a positive association. If the person was raised with a positive experience versus a disappointing or hypocritical experience, as that caller was kind of intimating. And they're training medical students, third-year medical students, not only to take pain measurements, you know, zero to ten, how bad's your pain, but also a spiritual history. You know, what faith were you raised, if any, growing up? How important is that faith to you now? Do you belong to a community of like-minded faith followers? And how actively do you want us to uh, address your faith in our um, treating your catastrophic illness? So for people who were raised in it, it was a positive association, whether it's formal denominational religion or a personal spirituality, the social network, the support, is very helpful, especially with people facing a catastrophic illness. And the other point he brings up is loneliness is not equivalent to being alone. Many people, you know, feel calm and rested and self-introspective uh, and recharged uh, by being alone, but they're not lonely. And then you can be with 20 people and still be lonely. So he makes some good points. On the Stolberg text line, Mike checks in. Hey, Mike, the culprit is technology, big government, and destruction of the nuclear family. Call centers and therapy are merely a Band-Aid. Larry? 
Well, that's true. It's also, and that's why I talk about attachment. So the point is well taken. Uh, For a healthy, well-rounded personality and someone who can interact with other people and not be an extreme loner, right? We have those three dimensions of codependent, radically independent, and interdependent. In order to get along with other people and reduce our aloneness, because humans are pack animals, just like dogs, birds, horses. They don't do well in solitary confinement. As people who are POWs or in solitary confinement in San Quentin. We do need a connection. But that connection, that ability to connect and attach, attachment, um, starts with our parents and our home of origin. And we have secure attachment if our needs were met consistently, and then we'll be able to more easily secure attach other people in person. We have to have what's called propinquity, fancy word. Even a song by one of the monkeys was propinquity. We need to have geographical accessibility to the person, not just a remote vision. And so we need to have that secure attachment. But if we have neglect or abuse, then we have avoidant or ambivalent attachment. And we tend to recreate that avoidant, uh, that avoidant uh, strategy because we don't want to be hurt. A lot of people who have chronic loneliness, we talked about in August, have a negative view of themselves. And they believe that if people got to know them, they wouldn't like them either. Yeah. On the sober text line, Cheryl checks in. Hey, Cheryl, does uh, contact with our pets help in decreasing loneliness? Yes, and it also decreases our people-to-people. To some extent, it can decrease or substitute or replace our people-to-people connection. Now, if you take your pet to a pet park, that's a wonderful place to connect. A lot of people meet friends of other pet parents, and you know me, Dave. You know, I have an uh, animal behavior background, wrote three books on animal training. I'm a big believer, and pets a times can give us things some of our humans can't. Unconditional listening, permission to touch, be touched, and, uninter- and, and permission to be touched, and uh, unconditional love, and uninterrupted listening, I should say. However, in order to be humane to our pets, we have to learn to be humane. And the only way to be humane is learn how to get along with humans. Yeah. All right. We'll come back for a short final segment with Dr. Lockman, author and psychologist. I'm Dave Congleton. You're listening to KVEC. All right, Dr. Larry Martinez on deck. We have a few minutes left with Dr. Larry Lockman. Too many Larrys. This gets confusing. All right, uh, Larry, I don't want to depress everybody. Can we end on some kind of positive, hopeful note? Uh, Yes, two types of loneliness. Social loneliness, you don't have enough friends. Emotional loneliness, you have a bunch of friends, but you don't feel close. And the way to feel close is to spend more in-person time and increase your self-disclosure of personal information. Uh, more companies and more schools and more cities are creating what they call third places or green places or sacred spaces where people that sit down and interact directly and uh, have a cell phone break. Uh, we talked about the small S schools, right? Uh, after school, go out and do some judo, karate, jiu-jitsu, kung fu. You interact with people and you meet people. Uh, same thing with uh, after school sports, uh, community centers. Uh, city adult uh, education or adult rec centers. Uh, some of the examples I gave before, before one of the breaks, like the Sierra Club for Singles and bicycling groups, go out and actually interact with people. Uh, anything worthwhile is going to take time and investment. What you get out of it is what you put in. Friendships are relationships based upon mutually satisfying 
um, experiences and they're voluntary, but doesn't have to. You don't have to like spill all your guts. We have what's called superficial friendships that are more based on exchange. You know, what I can do for you, you can do for me. And sometimes develop friendships where you spend more time getting to know the person, and you just are concerned with their welfare. You really care about them. And in order to care, you have to develop empathy. And the only way to develop empathy is interacting with other people. And like the one caller, yes, the destruction of the nuclear family. However, studies have shown you can have both bodies in the house with kids, uh, quote, mom and dad. But there's domestic violence, fighting, and yelling, and drug abuse going on. That is more destructive than having one body at home with the kids single mom or single dad that creates an emotionally healing, uh, peaceful, nurturing, compassionate environment. So it's not necessarily by bodies when we talk about nuclear family. And if we, unfortunately, don't, you know, we get born in a situation we didn't have a choice, uh, you can make friends your family. I'm a big believer of family going out and it's called corrective emotional experiences. If you had aversive childhood experiences, it just takes a friend's dad or mom or a mentor or role model to turn that around. Hmm. Who wrote the article, The Atlantic, in case people want to look it up? The Atlantic article, yeah. Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson in The Atlantic is the Derek, basis. D-E-R-E, Derek Thompson. The basis of this conversation today. Larry Lock, we always yeah. appreciate your time. Thank you for another great conversation. Thanks for having me, Dave. All right, sir, off we go. We've got news and traffic and weather. Dr. Larry number two, Larry Martinez. Join us next. Stick around. I'm Dave Congleton. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.